Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. One of my greatest joys in life, and that's probably unfortunately not an overstatement, is receiving a text from someone who has texted the wrong number. It's the best. And uh, I, I genuinely love it. it. Is probably in the top five things that could happen to me like during a day is get a text from the wrong number. I can't begin to describe you how much I love it. And uh, it just, and here's why. It's because um, I see that as like a gift. It's a gift that a stranger has given me to have a little bit of fun and hopefully make their day just a little bit better, right? Like I'll be, I'll be around people who get texts like this, like wrong number texts, you know? And may, maybe, uh, I hope by the end of this, you'll be convinced to not just ignore those, okay? And so, um, but I'll be around people who get these and I just get so jealous because I'm like, oh, I wish that was me. I wish, I wish I had the opportunity to respond to this, right? And so, um, and it doesn't happen that often. It's, it saddens me uh, to think that, Comets pass by the earth more often every year than I receive these texts, right? So they're, they're very, it rarely happens to me. And before, uh, before you find my number and you know, try, to, try to give me this gift of joy, I, I always search you know, the number in planning center to see like, is this someone from Candeo that I just don't have your number? So um, don't, don't try to trick me with this. So uh, it'll, it'll ruin it, all right? And so... Um, <clears throat> But because it happens so infrequently, I will screenshot these interactions and just keep them on my phone for myself, uh, a little rainy day treat, as it were. So I thought that I'd share a couple of these with you. These are actual interactions from like this last year, year and a half. Uh, and so here's the first one. Um, this is to me. Hello, Lexi. I appreciate your assistance in taking care of my Sparky. Please let me know when I may pick up baby from you. Now, I didn't know... I spent a lot of time trying to think, you know, trying to interpret this text. I got some Bible commentary. No, that's not true. But because I'm like, I'm like, okay, Sparky is probably a, a pet. But then she said, baby, is this just back to the pet or is this an actual baby and it's a weird name for a child? I don't know. So I spent a lot of time. So uh, my response to her was, hello there, of course. Thanks so much for the opportunity. You'll be happy to know that while you were away, he learned how to shake, speak, and fill out the Schedule A itemized deductions form for your taxes. <laughs> to which she replied, I apologize for my mistake. I checked and realized, blah, blah. Was able to make contact with real Lexi, and hopefully my sparking can do all those things. See, <laughs> this is what I'm talking about, right? Like, this is the opportunity we all have, people. So if you're ignoring these, all right, so this is, the, this is another one. Um, will you be in Iowa City Friday morning? Unfortunately, no, but it sounds like a blast. Will there be someone there to man the ID card booth? No, it's honor system. <laughs> Meaning there'll be a secret handshake that got emailed out. I have no idea what you're saying right now. And truth be told, I have no idea what we're talking about either. I think you have the wrong number. See, okay. Come on. How can that not make your day better, right? Like, just, just the opportunity. Uh, Sarah, my wife, got one of these a while back. 
Um, and she wasn't gonna respond. So I was like, no, you can't not respond. And the, the text was something like, I didn't get a screen because it was on her phone and she wouldn't let me take a screenshot of it. And, uh, but it was something like, hey, are we still on for the gym tomorrow at 5 a.m.? And I just texted back, no, I've decided to remain fat the rest of my life. So <laughs> things like this, this is, it's, it's the little things, okay? You know, so, but maybe you've done that. Maybe you've, maybe you've texted the wrong person. Maybe you've received a text who, from someone who thought it was someone else. You know, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've called the wrong number or received that. Maybe you've, maybe you've done that whole thing where you've waved at someone and you thought it was someone you knew and then you get closer and it was not at all someone you knew, right? Um, Seth Barron and I, some of you remember Seth. Uh, I would occasionally, like if he was at Sidecar, I'd come up kind of behind him and I'd, I'd turn his computer off while he was working. <laughs> Regardless of what's on his screen, it's just like your computer's off right now. So, so he kind of developed this habit too and uh, did this to someone, um, someone that he thought he knew <laughs> until he like, Reaches around, turns it off, comes around, it's like, that's a stranger. That just turned a stranger's <laughs> computer off, and now this is weird, you know? And so, but you've probably had that, like, like uh, that's not the person I thought they were moment, right? Well, what we have this morning in Mark chapter 9 is perhaps one of the biggest examples of mistaken identity in all of the Bible, and it's what's often uh, referred to as a transfiguration. That's perhaps what, your, what the heading you know, title in your Bible actually says, is the transfiguration. And, and if there's one thing that you need to see this morning, if there's one thing that we need to remember from this passage, if you kind of just tune out for the rest of the message, the one thing we need to see from this account in Mark chapter 9 is that Jesus is not who you think he is. Jesus is not who you think he is. He's infinitely better. Whether you don't believe in Jesus or you're skeptical of Christianity, maybe you're a new believer, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, the reality is, is that however you think of Jesus, positively, positively negatively, however you think of Jesus, no matter how highly you might even think of him, what this account shows us is that Jesus is clearly better than your lowest thoughts of him, but he's also infinitely better than your highest thoughts of him. And what we have here in Mark chapter nine is actually part of a broader context in the book of Mark, where Mark as an author is showing us through a few different stories, the struggle for sight. The struggle for sight, because in the chapter before, we see Jesus encounter a blind man. So if you have your Bible, flip back a page to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. You see, Mark, Mark is very purposeful in the way that he is laying out his accounts. And so look at Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and, and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go 
into the village. Now, there are several stories throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus uh, healing blind people, restoring their sight to them, but this one is particular to Mark. And not only is this story unique to Mark, but this story is unique even in the healing accounts. Why is that? Well, if you notice, it took Jesus two tries to heal the blind man. And before we just kind of like gloss over that, it's like, wait a second, this is Jesus. Jesus, he, you know, he, he, he hits it every time, right? Like he always makes his three-point shots. So why in this account does he need two tries to heal the blind man? Why is that? Was Jesus just like kind of tired that day? Was he a little distracted? Was he just not on his A game? Well, what Jesus is doing just before this mountaintop experience in Mark chapter nine is he's showing the kind of sight even his own disciples have. That while they have partial spiritual sight, they are also partially blind. Because we see right after Jesus heals the blind man, right after this, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And then in verse 28 of chapter eight, he says, they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And so Jesus is kind of giving them a pop quiz. Who do, you say, who, who do people say that I am? A lot of people say you're a good guy. A lot of people say you're a prophet, you're a teacher, all that kind of stuff. But we think that you're the Messiah. We think that you are the one that we, as the Jewish people, have been waiting for all of these years. So they get the answer right. But then immediately after that, in verse 31, he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. And so these, the disciples have just said, you're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And then Jesus says, well, here's what's gonna happen to me, the Messiah. I'm gonna be taken by the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed and I'm gonna rise from the dead. And then Peter, the one who just confessed that, he is, that Jesus is the Messiah, stops being a disciple and starts being a teacher, takes Jesus aside and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got it all wrong. You see, you're the Messiah. Messiahs don't get killed. Like the Messiah that we've been waiting for is supposed to come and overthrow the Roman government and is supposed to reestablish Israel back to its rightful place and, and, and make everything better. You're like, that's what Messiahs are supposed to do, Jesus. So you're, you're wrong about yourself. And Peter is showing right here that he is just like the guy that Jesus just healed of blindness. He, can, he partially understands who Jesus is, but he's also still partially blind. And so even Jesus' own disciples don't really understand who Jesus was. You see, they believed some true things about him, but they didn't see him for who he truly is. And some of you are in the same exact boat this morning. Some of you have thoughts about Jesus. 
You have thoughts about who he was, what he did. Maybe you think he was nice. Maybe you think he was a moral guy who loved people. Maybe you think he was a good moral example of how to, of how to like kind of live your life and speak truth to power and, and just love everyone around you. Maybe you think he was a historical figure. Like you can at least go, well, I, I think Jesus probably at least lived, right? Or a Jewish teacher or just like a good rabbi, like he was just a good, like historical Jewish rabbi who was very popular and, and taught people a lot of good things. Maybe you think Jesus was delusional. And, like, and then therefore all of the people who f- continue to follow him are just as delusional as he was. Or maybe you see Jesus kind of like the disciples did in this scenario. Maybe you see Jesus as like a means to an end. Like you have your expectations of what you think Jesus is supposed to do for you. And he's kind of this like spiritual or emotional vending machine, right? Maybe you see Jesus as like, well, if I just put enough like good works, good thoughts, you know, good feelings, good actions, if I just put in enough love to others, then what should come out of Jesus then is you know, peace and comfort and security and blessings. Because isn't that what messiahs are supposed to do? You do the right things, and then they, they give you good things in return. The disciples had their thoughts about Jesus, and they had their expectations of Jesus. And maybe you do too. But what Jesus wanted them to see and what he wants us to see this morning is that, is that he, he wants us to not be partially blind about who he actually is. You see, it's not, bad. it's not bad to have expectations of Jesus. The reality is, honestly, a lot of us, when, you know, if you're a Christian, when you first come to faith, a lot of times um, we come to Jesus with an agenda, with expectations, with thoughts about what we kind of expect him to then do for us as we have received him as our savior. We have an agenda and we want Jesus to help us fulfill our agenda, whatever that is. Maybe you're going through a, a rough, you know, a rough part, a rough season in life. And you think, well, maybe if I follow Jesus, then, then, th- then it'll at least give me like the peace and the comfort that I need to get through this hard time. Or maybe you know, for whatever it is, a lot of times we come to Jesus with an agenda. And I wouldn't, that's not necessarily bad, but at some point along the way, what Jesus often shows us is that he did not come to be part of our agenda. He actually came to give us an entirely new agenda. And so before their very eyes, he was transfigured. Now, this word transfigured literally just means to be transformed. It's, it's, it's the, the, the root of this Greek word is, a, is actually where we get our term metamorphosis, right? And his clothes became, as it says in the passage, uh, as like dazzling white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. So no matter how many gallons of bleach you use for your clothes, no matter how many tie pods, you know, you throw in the wash, as long as your high schoolers haven't eaten all of them, like as long as, you know, you just kind of, too much. Uh, as long as you, like, what, the way that he looked was unlike the way that any human could make themselves look. That's the point. And then to, to, to add to this unique experience, you could say, as Jesus has just uh, transformed right in front of them, now you have Elijah and Moses show up. 
So these guys who have been dead for a long time now show up and start talking to Jesus. And why Elijah and Moses? Well, one, these are two guys that, that the, uh, the Jewish people highly revere. They have great respect for them. And these are also two guys that in the Old Testament have unique mountaintop experiences with God. So as the disciples are having a unique mountaintop experience with Jesus, now these two guys who also had unique mountaintop experiences with God show up. We see this in Exodus chapter 33 with Moses on Mount Sinai when, when he asks to see the glory of God and God hides him in the cleft of the rock because he knows that if Moses sees the full glory of God, he won't be able to handle it. And so God hides him away and just lets him see his back. And then what we see for Elijah is in 1 Kings chapter 18, the whole challenge with the prophets of Baal and who is the true God and how God comes through and, and and engulfs both altars with fire and eats up all the sacrifices, proving that the God of Israel is the one true God. And here's both of these guys, Elijah and Moses, standing here talking with Jesus, and Peter is totally losing his mind. He's losing his mind. Because right in front of him, you have Jesus, who they've been following, but then you've got these, like, Elijah and Moses, this is, this is A-list celebrity, in the Jewish religious world. Like this is, this is like uh, Lionel Messi and The Rock and Taylor Swift walking in here right now. That'd be a little distracting, right? Like, I hope it would be, that'd be crazy. You know, it's like, what is it? And he's losing his mind. And then Peter starts talking about camping. Have you ever said something dumb when you've met someone you really respect? Right? You're like, are you serious? Elijah, Moses, Jesus. Not Peter, you want to go camping? What are you talking about? Camping's dumb, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Like, we used to have to camp, and now we don't have to, right? So we made houses to not have to camp. So um, if you like camping, that's fine. Just don't invite me. So... Uh, <laughs> but he starts, he starts talking about camping. We see that in, ver in verse 5. Look at what he says. Uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which, which means teacher, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters. The word there is literally tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, before we get too down on Peter here uh, for saying something kind of weird, kind of dumb, it'd be easy to slam Peter for saying something dumb here. But notice... Like Mark tells us why he said such a weird thing, right? Because when, when the disciples see Jesus totally unveiled, totally unmuted, like when they see him for who he is, they're totally terrified. And you know, part of the problem, one of the problems with, I'd say especially, it's probably not unique to hear, but it, especially with modern American Christianity, is that so few of us see God as a jaw-dropping, hands on your head, fall on your face, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I'm totally freaked out kind of God. The, the, the word for worship in the New Testament is this, is this, is this Greek word, it, it's it's, it's pronounced proskuneo. 
And literally what it means is that what the word worship in the New Testament means is to recognize the superiority of someone and then to assume an attitude and a posture that, that shows that you recognize their superiority. And so if worship means to recognize the superiority of God in the midst of his people as they gather together and proclaim his excellencies together, the excellencies of this glorious God who created everything by the word of his power, who measures the oceans in the palm of his hands, that this God whose voice shakes the mountains and splits the seas open and creates planets, if worship means to recognize the superiority of this God and then to assume an attitude and a posture that accords with that superiority, then it would seem as though the American church has become so enamored with being relevant and being casual that corporate worship has become little more than a glance, a yawn, and a mumble while we sip coffee out of our paper cups. And so we might look at Peter and go, man, that was so stupid. I mean, you saw, you saw all this happening and you started talking about camping. What a dumb response, Peter, when the reality is, is that Peter could look back at us and very rightly say, well, at least I kind of recognize the weight of what was happening. What's your excuse? My guess is Peter would think that we are more dumb for being vaguely impressed and moderately bored. And don't forget, this is Jesus that they were terrified of. So lest we think that, well, the God in the Old Testament was like harsh, judgmental, and scary, but Jesus is like the kind of like nicer God light, you know, like, Jesus is like uh, all of the God, but only 95 calories, you know? Like before we begin to kind of pit the God of the Old Testament against Jesus, it's Jesus who they're terrified of. And so Peter offers to set up some tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he offers this, mainly because he doesn't know what else to say because he's terrified. But then right after this, a cloud appears and out of this cloud comes the voice of God the Father that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, this is the second time that God has spoken audibly for everyone to hear. The first time is in the first chapter of Mark where God is speaking to Jesus, where he says, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. But here, God doesn't speak directly to Jesus. Here, God speaks to the disciples. and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, why does God do this right here? Why does he say this to the, to the disciples at this point? It's because even still, as Peter's offering to build these shelters for these three guys, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. Because Peter addresses Jesus as rabbi. He's transformed right in front of him. He's glowing. He's talking with these guys who've been dead for a long time. And yet still, Peter's addressing Jesus as teacher. And then he's offering to essentially 
Essentially what Peter's doing in offering to build these shelters for all three of them is he's basically saying that all three of them are equal. Well, here, here's, a, here's a tent for you, here's a tent for you, here's a tent for you, because all three of you guys are a big deal. He's making Jesus equal to the prophets. He's making Jesus equal to the forefathers. He's making Jesus equal to their religious heroes. And so God breaks in and says, don't you dare equate my son with the prophets or the forefathers or anyone else you greatly respect. You see, the disciples didn't think poorly of Jesus. They didn't think he was a bad guy. They didn't think he was a liar. They didn't think he was a criminal or an outlaw. The disciples thought very nice things about Jesus. But the problem wasn't that they didn't see him as good. The problem was that they didn't really understand that he is God. Their problem was that while they saw Jesus as a good guy to follow, they did not see him as God to be worshiped. And my guess is, is that many of us think really nice things about Jesus. Nice-ish. Good guy, moral teacher, famous historical figure, someone to emulate, Maybe for you, the, 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 whole, you know, the whole God stuff, it's like, well, at least he was a good guy that you know, taught nice things and, can, and it can maybe at least help people love people as long as people actually follow what he taught, right? But what, just, but what Jesus does over and over and over again in the New Testament is he takes away your middle ground. He takes away the option, actually, of just of thinking nice things about him. Because what he does is he continues to read. You see, Jesus didn't claim to be a nice guy. Jesus didn't claim to be a good teacher. Because nice guys and good teachers do not lie about being God, as Jesus claimed, and then deceive his followers. Nice guys don't deceive their followers into believing a lie and then letting them lay down their life for that lie. That's not a nice guy. That's not a good moral figure. And so Jesus constantly takes away your middle ground. You see, Jesus is either a delusional lunatic that you should rightly feel anger towards for deceiving so many people, or he is God. You don't get to have Jesus as a nice guy. But here's Jesus showing his disciples and showing us that he may not be the savior that we were expecting him to be. He may not be the, the Messiah that fits neatly into our agenda for our life, but he is absolutely the savior that we need. And so the question this morning is how is your eyesight? How's your eyesight? Do you see Jesus as a nice guy? Do you see him as delusional? Or do you worship him as God? Maybe you see him like a friend who loves you no matter what and never challenges you. 
which kind of like constantly reaffirms, 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 but never actually confronts you with anything. How's your eyesight? Do you see him for who he is? Do you see him as the, as the image of the invisible God? Who by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. That's talking about Jesus Christ. Do you see him for who he is? Not as this far off God who's aloof or unconcerned with who you are or what you're going through. Not as this like celestial traffic cop who's just, who's just eager to write you a ticket five seconds after your moral meter runs out. But do you see him as the son of God who is both high and lifted up and worthy of all honor and glory and praise forever and who is at the same time this glorious God who left his heavenly throne and became low, who lived a perfect life, who died the death, who absorbed the wrath of God that you and I deserve and who rose again victoriously over the grave so that you might be reconciled to God, not to fit within your agenda, but to give you an entirely new agenda. Friends, stop having such a small view of Jesus because the truth is, is that Jesus isn't who you think he is. He's infinitely better. And this is why this morning we get to once again celebrate this Messiah whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled on our behalf so we can have God as father and Christ as brother. And so what communion is, is communion isn't just a remembrance of what Christ has done, though it is certainly that, but it is also an anticipation of what Christ will do. You see, what we have in the elements of the bread and the cup is both a reminder of the, of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ and what communion is for the church now is this is like an appetizer. You go, why is the bread so small? Because it was never meant to be a meal. That's what appetizers are, right? It's an appetizer that serves as a foretaste to a future meal that we will eat together at the marriage supper of the lamb as we gather around one table and celebrate what Christ has done. Communion is for Christians and so if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we'd love to invite you to participate with us in receiving communion. There are tables throughout the room, four up here, uh, two on the sides and two up. I'm just calling it the balcony. That's not what it is. Find me a better word. Uh, two in the balconies. And so there's gluten-free cups and bread at uh, every station as well. And so during the band's gonna come up and they're gonna lead us in this next song. And at any point during this song, uh, if you're participating in communion with us, get up out of your seat, come up to one of the tables, get the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat. And I'll, I'll lead us in, uh, in receiving the elements together. And so during this song, at any point, get up and grab them, take them back to your seat and I'll come back up once the song's done. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.